Hey, everybody. It is great to have you uh, back with us on the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. The Chinese spy balloon saga last week brought the state of U.S.-China relations to the front burner for many of us. And we're always seeking to uh, dive deeper here into the big issues impacting this world on the Mo News Podcast. And so today, Jill and I present the second part of our interview with Josh Rogan. He's a Washington Post reporter and columnist who has covered Washington and China for years. He has a book out on China-U.S. relations during the Trump administration called Chaos Under Heaven. I've linked to it in the show notes. Highly recommended if you're looking for more context. You might recognize Rogan uh, for his appearances on television, his columns, or maybe you just listened to yesterday's podcast, Part One, where we spoke to him about all things the balloon, TikTok. I definitely encourage all of you to listen to Part One of this conversation Today, in part two, we talk about some of the exclusive reporting he has gotten into the origins of COVID, the Wuhan lab. He had some of the first remarkable reporting going back to the U.S. government being concerned about Wuhan pre-COVID. We'll also talk today about the likelihood of war over Taiwan. And then we go a bit big picture into which strategies have worked for Trump and which ones have worked for Biden when it comes to dealing with China. I think you'll get a lot out of this podcast if you're interested in this subject. We really try to, again, bring you the big picture here in our conversation with Josh. A reminder before we get started here to review the podcast, if you can, in whatever app you listen to us on. Also, follow or subscribe to the show in your app so you don't miss a single episode, especially on days like today, where you're getting multiple episodes. With that, I bring you part two of Jill and my conversation with Josh Rogan. All right, Josh, I want to bring the conversation now to Taiwan. It has been pseudo-independent, sort of, for about 70 or so years. We have this very unique arrangement where we consider Taiwan to technically be a part of China, one China policy, but we want it to maintain its democratic government, and we do not condone Chinese territorial control over Taiwan. Like I said, very complex. China has shown more signs, concerning signs, in the last couple of years of potentially invading Taiwan sometime in the near future. So the big question we want to start here with is, is a Chinese invasion of Taiwan inevitable? And importantly, would the U.S. get involved militarily or would it be more like a Ukraine hands-off scenario? Yeah, it's a really great question. You know, uh, nothing's inevitable, but it's looking bad. It's looking real bad. And I say that, again, with just to you know, give myself a little a slight bona fides. I went to Taiwan recently. I went in November after three years of, you know, they were shut down for COVID, really shut down. They did a great job containing COVID, but no one could leave. <laughs> they didn't leave or come into Taiwan. Even people who lived there it was a, they took a very serious approach and they got screwed over by the World Health Organization who wouldn't include them in their conversations because they're, you know, the Chinese didn't like it. Like they couldn't get any good vaccines from the system. It was real. We treated the Taiwanese like crap during the pandemic, but they, they banned it together. And they did the best that they could. Now they opened up. I was three, there three days after they opened up. I interviewed the foreign minister, the you know, the president's you know spokesperson, went to a bunch of conferences, interviewed a bunch of people in the street. And then, and I got a, a message, a clear message. You know, we're standing strong for against China. If they attack, we're going to fight back. Uh, we'd love for the Americans to help us. But either way, we're, you know, we're, we're here to tell you Taiwanese democracy is strong and getting stronger, blah, blah, blah. So then I went to the, Island. It's called Penghu Island. This is where the like the American journalists rarely go. It's the island where the Chinese would land if they were to attack first. They got to go to this island, and then from that island you go to the main island. And I went to see the frontline defenses. I'm like, ah, oh, let's see what's going on here. And I'm 
quite uh, uh, unfortunately have to report that uh, the defenses are not there. That actually, you know, we, we're telling ourselves a story in Washington. And I haven't even really written this in the post yet, again, because I've been on paternity leave, but it's, it, I'm just trying to answer your question very honestly in the moment, uh, that we're telling our, ourselves a story about defending Taiwan that's not realistic because uh, uh, the, the, it's not Ukraine. The Taiwanese uh, young people haven't been fighting for 10 years. They're, they're not, their training is not what it should be. They've got a bunch of equipment they don't know how to use. The, you know, the prevailing sentiment amongst real people in Taiwan that is, is that if China attacks Taiwan, they'll take it, okay? With some resistance, but not a lot. And they'll take it likely before we could get there. Now, crazily enough, that's exactly what President Trump told me when I interviewed him. There was a, during the Trump administration, there were a lot of pro-Taiwan hawks like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. Right, it was during Bright. Trump that they started giving military aid at a level we hadn't given before to the Taiwanese. Yeah, so again, it's hard to have these two ideas that uh, together in your head at the same time that don't seem to mesh, but the reality of the situation was that the Trump administration was very hawkish. Trump, not so much. He didn't care about Taiwan. He said to a senator once, and this is in my book, we're 9,000 miles away, the Chinese are two feet away. If they attack, there isn't a fucking thing he can do about it. He said that to a, a, a Republican senator. It's a quote in my book. So he wa- he had no plans to defend Taiwan. Now, if, now, what does Biden say? Biden says, oh, yeah, we're definitely going to defend Taiwan. And the White House keeps saying, oh, well, we haven't made that commitment. And it's a contradiction in U.S. policy that I keep asking Biden officials to resolve. And they, the answer keeps, keeps coming back. Uh, we have no intention of resolving that contradiction. So what are the Taiwanese supposed to think? What are the Japanese supposed to think? What are the Chinese supposed to think? It's kind of a you could call it, it uh, the kind way is to say that it's ambiguity. That's what they say. Oh, well, yeah. we're ambiguous. But. I argue that the ambiguity is losing its value because the real world deterrence is flowing in China's side that they're going to stop caring about our ambiguity and try something if we don't do something different or at least change the way we're thinking about it. And what the Biden people say is that Joe Biden says he, we will invade Taiwan because that's the right thing to say politically. He's a political animal. He's a senator. But when that actually happens, uh, I fear that there will be nothing that we can do about it. I hope that we, between that moment and now, we build the capacity to do something, but that's what I argue for, which is an expensive, complicated thing to do that should require trade-offs and sacrifices in other areas of our budget and our attention. Our hope at this point is sort of the way we're treating Ukraine, which is we'll give you a bunch of aid and military aid and you do the fighting for us because we don't want to be in a direct, competi- a direct conflict with Russia. We don't want to be in a direct conflict with nuclear-armed China. And so we've played this ambiguous game for years where we're going to defend them, but we're not defend them, but we won't say what we'll do, but we'll say what we do. But we- And then Biden, you know, either on purpose or just by happenstance because he's Joe Biden, throws it out there and they're like, no, 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 we won't do that. But we might. China, you beware. Right, right. Um, we, right. We, so what is that? Is that ambi- is that strategic ambiguity or is that a mess? Is that a signals mess? You know what I mean? Like the Biden people were like, oh, no, that's all deliberate. Well, our and entire I, policy there since the <laughs> 70s has been like, we recognize China's right to Taiwan, but you can't actually control Taiwan. And that's been a policy for 40 plus years already. And there are a lot of people who would argue quite rightly that it's kept the peace for 40 plus years. But yeah. what I say to that is that the the balance of power is getting so far on the Chinese side that that policy is wearing very thin. And that in order to maintain that policy, if we don't want to be explicit, then we should increase our deterrence so that at least the, when the China, when Xi Jinping adds up the tanks and the he has to think twice about it, you know? And we can speculate about the lessons that Xi Jinping is learning from Ukraine, but hopefully we're learning our own lessons. Well, I I wanted to talk about that because you bring that up and that's that's an argument that is made and I imagine we'll hear it again from Biden the State of the Union, which is our aid to Ukraine, the fight against Putin uh, is an example that we're setting for China. We want to show China that there are ramifications to invading. 
that there are right. economic ramifications, there are political ramifications. What is the sense of the lesson that has been learned in Beijing by what they have watched unfold in Ukraine this past year? Right. No, it has to give them pause. In other words, what Vlad, one of Vladimir Putin's chief mistakes was underestimating the resolve of the U.S. and NATO. And so he, he, Xi Jinping has to look at that and say, oh, wait, maybe they are willing to sacrifice treasure, if not blood, to defend democracies far away from their shores. At the same time, the only logical conclusion that he could draw after reaching that first conclusion would be, if I'm going to do it, I got to do it like, like total destruction, like season seven of Game of Thrones, the dragon comes and destroys King's Landing destruction, okay? Because the 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 siege from like season six is not gonna work. So, you know, that means really, really bad outcomes for Taiwan if he decides to go. Now, the Ukraine war isn't over yet. So that's one thing that we have to do is we have to win the Ukraine war. And the the, the other thing we have to do is we have to fight, in my view, again, this is my opinion now, uh, we have to fight the forces inside of our own politics that are trying to pull the plug on that operation under the false premise that that attention could be shifted to China. Because we have this thing going on in our Washington politics called the new right, national conservatism, which is a sort of a rebranded MAGA foreign policy, you know, without Trump, but meant to like sort of pass the smell test in the chattering class. And a lot of traditional D.C. foreign policy organizations like the Heritage Organization are, are, are joining that movement because that's where the cool kids in the young part of the Republican Party are. And that's where a lot of the donor money is moving. And the politicians follow the money. Okay. The lawmakers follow the donors and the donors are moving towards the voters because they want to. So anyway, the point is that you'll, you'll see a lot of like Tucker Carlson and these guys being like, Oh, we got to abandon Ukraine to fight China. But just think of like how silly that sounds when considering what we just talked about. When you think, and especially like when I was in Tokyo, you know, they were like, uh, we're next to Russia and China. Like, how are we supposed to fight one and not the other? Like, they're literally both on our border. So we have to see them as a connected problem. And that's because they see it that way. That's because Putin and Xi Jinping are not, they're not perfect friends. They don't love each other, but they're strategic allies. And they're on that team with Iran and North Korea. And we're on the other team. And Taiwan wants to be on our team. We should take them onto our team. They're good. They're going to be a good team member. They have all the, the chips, by the way. If we care about chips so much, we might not want to lose the country that makes all the best chips. But literal chips. We're not talking about virtual chips. We're talking about like the literal chips that power chips. our computers and cars and everything. Yeah, yeah. That that we that we without which we cannot have an economy. So if China takes Taiwan, if you don't care about democracy, I get it. A lot of people in America are like that's over there. We're over here. You know what are we gonna? You know we don't. They don't some people don't care about human rights. Some people don't care about China. Do you care about like your, the U.S. economy? Because if Taiwan falls, that's going to be the, you know ten times worse than uh, what happened after Russia attacked Ukraine. It's interesting the way you talk about um, Taiwan here. We had the former acting CIA director Mike Morell on this podcast last year. He's been on a couple times, and he was talking about how China, based on what he knows in his context at this point, that China sees kind of a five to seven year window, basically the rest of this decade. Uh, to to do the Taiwan thing, to invade Taiwan, right, and and take it back after not having territorial control of it for seventy years, and then they kind of see in the twenty thirties that U.S. military technology will will get to the point where it would actually be difficult for the Chinese to take it. So they have this sort of window here. I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that. And then separate, I do from, actually. Okay, <laughs> yeah. okay. So I want your thoughts on that. And then separately, the other anecdote that sticks with me every time I think about China 
is Morrell was talking, you know, as the former head of the CIA, he would meet with intelligence officials in China, vice versa. And the discussions always struck him that here in the U.S. and in the West, we talk about good decades and bad decades. And in China, they talk about good centuries, and in some cases, good millennia, that they have a very long view of history. And we tend to view like the balloon thing happened last week. And then what about TikTok? And the Chinese are like, this is a long game. Our country's been around for thousands of years. And they're very patient when they view these things. So um, getting into that window and just kind of the long view of Chinese history. Yeah, no. Okay, so first on uh, uh, the five to seven year projections. So like, in like in Washington, five to seven years is a great time to of like window to predict that things will happen because it's like it's long enough that like you never ever get called on it when it happens, and it's short enough to sound like kind of like interesting. Like, but I'm just saying like like how does he know? You know? And then the guy, there was that other general who said two years, and it was like, oh my god, two years, and it was like, oh, how does he know? Now that's not to say serious people aren't studying this, but what I'm here to tell you is that a prediction of that timeline is useless useless in our intellectual discussion for the simple reason that there are too many variables. It's not just about China. China may have a plan to do something by, like, if they publish it, they say we have uh, made in China 2025. Okay, well, now we're talking about something that exists in the world that we can see. And if if they say, well, we have China 2030, you know, technology plan. Okay, well, then they're saying it, then that's fine. We can report that. But if we're just like looking at like the pieces on the chess table and saying, eh, seems like five, seven, like that sounds to me to be like like totally made up to be honest for the simple reason that there are all these other actors is that if we do nothing is that if we do everything is that if we do what we're doing right now don't the Taiwanese get a vote don't the Japanese get a vote you know so what will the economic conditions be in five to seven years will there be another Ukraine somewhere like in Georgia or like got you know so it's kind of it's silly really but what I will say is that when I think about the threat level what I think about is capability and intent because any situation where an aggressor is about to pop off, right? Where you have a guy who wants this, you know, it's like, like, like this is what the time when you try to explain to people, they're like, you don't understand for them. It's not about the chips. It's not about, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 the Taiwan Strait. It's not about the economics. They just want it. All right. And they're not going to stop wanting it. And they're going to try to get it any way that they can. And first they're going to try all the other ways. And again, we're always looking at the invasion, but I was in Taiwan. 80% of the media is bought up by the, Chinese-friendly billionaires, 80%. So there's like a lot of channels. Four out of five of them are like pro-Beijing. That's been like that for 20 years. You know, they're getting hacked. They're getting you know, economic repression. They screw with their politics. They'll try every other way. They didn't invade Hong Kong, remember. They just cracked down. They use Hong Kong people to crack down on Hong Kong primarily. And so they would much rather do that. So they're going to try that. When they exhaust that option and meet the capability, you know, when you talk about an invasion, you think about, again, just because I went to the island, that where they're going to invade, I was there three months ago. You're talking about, first of all, the invasion force. Then you're talking about the standoff force. That's the force that keeps us from getting there. And that's the nuclear arsenal that they're building. Why are they building a thousand nuclear missiles? Because they want Putin-style deterrence. They want to be able to say, if you come to defend Taiwan, we're going to nuke you. And we called Putin's bluff on that, but who knows? What if Xi Jinping's not bluffing? Or at least they want to have that bluff. And then the economic fortitude to withstand the sanctions. So again, nobody reports this in Washington because we're staring at the balloon and it's shiny, and you know now it's in the water. Now we got to take the boat into the water. I get that; it's a good visual. But wouldn't it be interesting to know that, like, the Chinese government is is stockpiling goods, like food stuff, oil, energy. All, they've been doing it for years. 
Why are they doing that? They're, they're insulating themselves so that if we do somehow manage to cut them off from the world economy, they're going to be okay. So once they get the economic piece, the political piece, the military piece, and the nuclear piece together, that's when stuff gets really, really dangerous. And I think some of that is where you see the five to seven years. Some military commanders will say, well, according to current trajectories, all those pieces would be together around 2027. Then when you talk about intent, okay, well, how do we know what Xi Jinping intends? How do we get inside the mind of any of these, let's be honest, psychopathic, mass murdering dictators? Okay, that's what he is. He's committing an ethnic cleansing and genocide of the Uyghur people, subjecting millions of Tibetans to horrors unknown that you and I can't even contemplate. Okay, and threatening the world with a war for what? So you could get another 23 million people to throw on top of for some historical grievance that we weren't even alive to remember. That's a psychopathic thing to do. And it's a, a, again, I'm not saying that we should go to war with China. No, nobody out there accused me of that because I'm saying we should avoid the war by showing the psychopathic criminal organization leading autocrats that we mean business because that's, the, that's what they understand. Okay, that's what history should have taught us. And when they think that we don't mean business, then they're like, oh, they're, they're, let, let's try some crazy stuff. So it's just a matter of being honest about what we're dealing with. And then if they want to cooperate on cl climate change, great. I'm all for that. Don't get me wrong. I want to cooperate with China on climate change. I care about that issue. I'm not willing to do it on the basis of Uyghur slaves. In other words, I don't want silicon panels from China that were mined by Uyghur slaves. That offends me. That's, uh, that's not okay. It's also against the U.S. law. We're not supposed to take forced labor, slave labor products, even from China, even when they're for things we like, like solar. I love solar panels. I would rather they not be made by slaves. And in fact, that's the law. And then they passed another law, but we're still taking them. So these are complicated things. These are conflicting interests in our society. We want to have an open society, but we want to keep out the spying. We want to have climate change cooperation, but we don't want to build a system to save the planet that's based on a genocide. Think of how crazy that is. We're going to save the planet while genociding these poor Muslim people, millions of them who did not, never did anything wrong except not want to pray to Xi Jinping every day. you know. And if we want to prove that our system is better than their system. This is answering your next question, which is the long view, right? People, this is a common trope again in, in Washington. Well, you know, those authoritarian governments, they take the long view. They can do planning over a long time and this and that. Well, in a sense, yes, but here's the problem with that. One, all dictators die. Every single one. Every In history, from the from time immemorial, anytime there's been a dictator, he's died. Every dictator that will ever live will die. So what does that mean? It means if you have the entire country in the hands of one man, when he dies, you have chaos. So you get like a period of stability-ish, if you call a genocidal expansionist, aggressive dictatorship stability. But then what happens when he dies? Then it's a, a competition between the meanest guys surrounding him to be the next dictator. You know, sometimes you have a king. Okay, well, the king can have his son. How does that work out? You know, we have like hereditary power makes as much sense as hereditary mathematicians, right? That's what Mark Twain said. I'm, I might be misquoting, but you get my drift. So the reason that our democracy is good is because it's messy, because we have the ability to change quicker. Now, COVID is not a great example of that because we screw that up because our system is broken, because Washington is deeply broken and deeply dysfunctional. I've been here 23 years since, let's see, I came to GW three years before you. So I've been here, blah, 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 blah. I don't want to tell you all day. I've been here a long, a long time. Yeah. Okay. And I'm here to tell you this is the worst I've ever seen it and the most dysfunctional. And that's not to say it wasn't dysfunctional the whole time. And so, yeah, our, we can only compete with China successfully if our system is functioning on a basic level and if we decide that our values are more important than our partisan interests and we're not there, we're simply not here. That's not what's happening. That's what we have to fix. That's why I talk to 
Democrats, Republicans, uh, uh, I say the same exact thing. I'm like, let's get together on this thing. You know, progressives, your concerns about racism and hate and violence against Asian Americans are valid and must be addressed. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a stain on our culture and our society that we allow that to happen. But you have to separate that from the Chinese Communist Party because the CCP is not a race, as my Hong Kong activist friends constantly remind me. Okay, and so being against the Chinese Communist Party is not the same thing as being anti-Chinese. We have to be clear about that. At the same time, on the right, we have to get rid of the xenophobia and nationalism in our China policy. But anyway, I could go on, but I'll stop there. Okay, coming up, we're going to get to all things COVID and some of Josh's exclusive reporting into the Wuhan lab. It's one of the reasons we have him on today. But first, let's take a quick break to thank some of our sponsors. Let's start with a game changer in the daily vitamin and supplement space, Athletic Greens. I've been using their AG1 supplement since the fall. The Athletic Greens AG1 powder is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It's easy, quick, and lets you get on your day knowing that you've gotten more than 75 important ingredients, tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support your gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. You can visit athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. While there, you can get a monthly subscription that's discounted or just try it for one month. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S, for a special deal that will really start to let you take ownership of your health. All right, another partner this week I want to tell you about is Apostrophe Skincare. If you're tired of just hearing the solution to great skin is just drinking more water and you're looking for more help, this platform is an incredible resource. Apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with expert dermatologists to get customized treatment for your skin. It's very convenient. Apostrophe can help you on your road to a solution for a number of things, including adult acne or dark spots. It's simple to use and can be done from home. You answer several questions, snap a few selfies, and a board-certified dermatologist will create an initial customized treatment plan for you. They have a special deal now for the Mo News audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash monews using our code monews. Simple as that. It's a savings of $15. To get started, again, just go to apostrophe.com slash monews. It's apostrophe, A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E, apostrophe.com slash monews, and click to get started and you'll get your first visit for only $5. So let's talk a little bit about COVID because three years later, we still have no clarity on the origins of the virus. Uh, The original narrative was that it came from an animal at at that seafood market in Wuhan. You had some of the first reporting about, or or maybe the first reporting about the U.S. State Department concerns about the safety of the Wuhan lab going back several years pre-COVID and its connection to the outbreak. What do we know at this point about the virus? It's now killed 10 million people across the globe. What kind of information do you have in terms of where this actually came from? Well, uh, um, (laughs) I hate to plug the book, but so imagine I'm writing a book about the U.S.-China relationship and and the outbreak erupted in the middle of the writing process. So I, I was already in the middle of the sort of bureaucratic and diplomatic and intelligence world for this issue. That's why I caught all this good reporting. Now, because I was, the reporting was against the narrative at the time. I thought it was pretty newsworthy and, and, and other people thought it was controversial, but I didn't come in with any predisposed notions. And to this day, I don't claim to know where, what the origin of the coronavirus is. In fact, I 
don't claim to be advocating for either side of or any side of the debate over what the origin of the coronavirus is. What I've said consistently for the last three years is we should have a real investigation into the origin of the coronavirus because it's an urgent issue of national security and public health. In other words, if we don't find out, even now, three years later, even as hard as it may be, even with most but not all of the evidence held by the Chinese Communist Party, if we don't figure it out, then we are increasing the risk that this will happen again. So my first message to all of you out there is anyone tells you to shut up about it and don't worry, we already figured it out and it came from the market and just don't, it's fine. And anybody who like says otherwise is a pro-Trump conspiracy theorist. Those, those are the people you got to watch for because those are the people trying to shut down the debate. So let me just say very clearly that I believe, as the Biden administration does believe, as Joe Biden has said many, many times, and Trump, it's one of the things that Trump and Biden actually agree on, although we'll get to that in a second, uh, that there are two possible scenarios. One, that it was linked to the market somehow, the outbreak, and one that it was linked to the lab somehow that was next to the market. Now, I personally believe that there's a pile of circumstantial evidence pointing to some relation to the lab. Doesn't mean necessarily it came from the lab originally. In other words, that at some point in the virus, the virus touch the lab. I think that pile of evidence is more compelling and larger and growing larger every day than the alternative theory evidence that it came from the market. And very simply, with all of the investigation into the market theory, actually, if you think about it, there's virtually no concrete evidence that the outbreak happened in the market. There's evidence that the virus was at the market, but not that the outbreak happened there. No animal that was seen found to be an intermediary, despite the searching of tens of thousands of ferrets and you know, prayer, raccoon dogs and minks gave their lives for the market investigation. May they all rest in peace. Tens of thousands of pangolins and raccoon dogs. Pangolins, that was the first one, the pangolins. Pangolins. You know how yeah. many pangolins and raccoon dogs have died to prove the market theory? None of them were found with the innocent pangolins. Zero of were found to have been an intermediary host. On the other hand, there's a ton of evidence that they were doing dangerous research on bat coronaviruses at the lab 10 miles away that was not only linked to the Chinese military bio uh, uh, program, which was located there, according to, again, the Biden administration and the Trump administration, this is not a partisan point, that these labs were doing dangerous work on back coronaviruses in conjunction with their military that they didn't tell us about. And so just saying that much is a mouthful because uh, the way that the debate has unfolded in our politics has been really horrible. And basically it got conflated with you know, trying uh, bad faith attacks on Anthony Fauci, and it got conflated with Rand Paul and his nonsense. Right, and we're and about that, and we're about to see a whole bunch of it with the hearings that I imagine will unfold over the next year. This will be a yet another. And again, I I could talk about this for hours. I'm going to try to summarize it for the purposes of, of of not rambling on. And what and just to say this that there has never been an actual independent international investigation into the one of the two theories that that this might be connected to the lab somewhere that there is a ton of circumstantial evidence, no proof, because we can get caught in the nomenclature, but circumstantial evidence that there might be a connection to the lab. But there's been no real investigation. And because the Chinese the w- won't allow it. Well, in part because the Chinese won't allow it, because they instituted a cover-up and shut down the science and shut down the labs. Then the WHO uh, screwed up the investigation by uh, putting it in the hands of scientists who had a clear conflict of interest because they were involved in the research on, in question. And those scientists are amongst the loudest voices telling you, don't you dare look at the labs without acknowledging that they have this conflict of interest, much less to do the investigation than to exonerate 
the labs and tell everybody to shop. It was really ridiculous. And I think that there are bad faith attacks on Anthony Fauci that are really unfair. But I think that there are some good faith criticisms and questions that our government needs to answer about what was going on in those labs. And that's not to say that we funded the virus. It's to say that we had this partnership with these Chinese scientists that they abused, not because they're right, bad scientists. Right. I was going to say, you know, you suddenly the people who advocate the lab thing are like, it was purposely done. America tried to put it out. I mean, there's a whole bunch right. of crazy there. So it can be true at the same time that the virus came from a lab, but th- then it gets to the debate about whether it was an accidental release or a purposeful release from the lab, right? Right. So there's, there's the debate of whether it was quote unquote engineered or not and whether or not it was gain of function or research or not. And again, my very short take on that is that we were funding research in these labs with these Chinese scientists that was poorly understood by the people doing the funding back in Washington. And there was a lack of oversight and accountability. And what the Chinese scientists did is they took that research, most likely, and they brought it to the other part of the lab, the part that we didn't know about. That's what the Biden administration and the Trump administration agree on again. Because I, you know, one reason it got politicized is because Trump said it came from the lab. And when I interviewed Trump, I asked him why he thought that. And I badgered him about it. And in the end, I determined in my own evaluation that he didn't actually know that he was speaking out of his tuchus, okay? That doesn't mean he was wrong, you know, because the broken clock is right twice a day. So he, Trump politicized the issue. The intelligence community politicized the issue by linking, linking that there was no evidence. Then the Biden people came in. They didn't know about any of that, okay? They didn't even, they weren't there, okay? They didn't have any of this wet market lab leak baggage. They, they, it, it wasn't there on their watch. So they come in and they take a look around. They're like, oh, well, yeah, sure. It could have been the lab. But what's the incentive for really pushing the Chinese on that? They're not going to show up anyway. So what I say is we have to investigate as much as possible our cooperation with the labs, because that's the best we can do to understand the work they were doing there. But Democrats won't join in with that because they think that plays into like xenophobia and anti-Fauci hate. And so Republicans have largely been left to do that. So our political debate has made it impossible to find the truth. The situation in China yes. has made it impossible to find the truth. Correct. At, at the same time, we were talking previous to hitting record on this podcast, but I want I, I, I want to ensure it's on the record here. So we know last year that every intelligence agency, Biden told every intelligence agency, the government, there's multiple ones, right? The Defense Department has one, the State Department has one, the FBI has one, et cetera. Investigate what happened with COVID and come back to me. And there was no consensus among the agencies. Some were still playing with the wet market. Some said it may have come from the lab. A number of them said, we don't know. Talk to us about that, that investigation. And is it over now that they all came back with this unclear report? It's kind of a, it's, it's, it's not exactly over. So here's, here's the real deal. Here's the real scoop, okay? The real deal with Josh Rogan. Go ahead. This is, you know, they say like we don't live in any realities. I'm giving you my best honest report without fear or favor. I don't have no agenda. I'm just telling you what I know and I'll tell you what I don't know. What I know is that when I found that cable, you know, again, in 2020, the beginning of the pandemic, which said that U.S. diplomats had gone to these labs three years prior. It doesn't talk about the outbreak because it was three years prior and had determined that the lab didn't have enough safety uh, procedures to manage what they considered to be a very risky project. And what was that risky project? Adding human lung characteristics to mice and then running back coronaviruses through those mice to make them more dangerous. That was in the cable. And then two years later, it turns out that in that city, 10 miles away, there's an outbreak of a virus that seems to have been added through an intermediary host from a back coronavirus. It's almost the exact same thing. And when I wrote that article in the Washington Post, Facebook banned, okay? And I was like, what? That never happened to me before. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I, I, it was in the Washington Post. 
and Politico. I did a, a, a book excerpt for Politico and they eventually unbanned it. But the point was like, that's when I realized that, oh man, our understanding of this issue is all screwed up. And then you had like the media reporters, they came in and, and you know, to decry all the people on the right because it became, a, it became caught up in our media wars. So, you know, some, half the people are in the mainstream media and half the people are on the right of the MAGA media. They hate each other. So MAGA media said it was the labs, the mainstream media kind of like put up its defenses because what they were caught up in the confirmation bias. This is something that you know, you guys know working in the media for so long. It's something of a pack mentality and it's also confirmation bias. You know, they, they it seemed like it was the market at the beginning and people didn't want to be wrong. They didn't want to, they didn't want to get owned by, you know, the gateway pundit or whatever it was. And that, that's how that's how humans are. It's not really the way reporting is supposed to work, but we're all human beings and we have to examine and be honest about our confirmation bias. Then there was the source bias, because if you're a science reporter at the New York Times, I'm just going to for a hypothetical example, a science reporter at the New York Times, your best sources are guys like Anthony Fauci and Peter Daszak who have a conflict of interest. But you've been writing science stories. They've always been right in the past. Why would they lie to you about this? And oh, wait, this is different because they have a conflict of interest. So that's how it got all screwed up. There was It got caught up in our culture wars, our media wars, our Trump wars. And the intelligence community did a disservice by pushing back against the lab leak theory because they were trying to defuse the Trump people from overreacting because of the intelligence Trump battle that we previously talked about. Now, skip ahead when the Biden people came in again, they were like, we don't want to touch this with the 10 foot pole. I personally went to the White House several times and said, you guys have to check this out. And they're like, why? Why would we check out the Pompeo statement about blah, blah, blah? You know, because Pompeo had put out the statement basically accusing the Wuhan labs of being guilty. And I said, because this is an important national security and public health issue, and it's your responsibility as the leaders of our government to look into it, you know, and go check out the Pompeo people's work. Like, Josh, fine. So they actually did it. And this was on my, and I wrote the article in the Washington Post, which revealed their findings. And their findings were essentially that the Trump administration information about the Wuhan labs was correct, although it was incomplete. And they said that, all of this work, dangerous work with the Chinese military on back coronaviruses was in fact going on in Wuhan. And that, and, and, but that, you know, the other side of the story hadn't been told by the Trump administration. Fair enough. Then on the net, very next day, and I'm not saying this was a result of my inquiry, but I'm not saying it wasn't a result of my inquiry. The president ordered a 90 day intelligence review, a 90 day intelligence review. Now, again, I'm, I'm, I'm making a plea here to the humanity of, of, Republicans and Democrats and progressives and conservatives everywhere that like we have a shared interest in living, surviving and not having another pandemic. Check out the market theory. Go ahead. I, I want I want the people who love the market theory to spend the rest of their lives looking for that pangolin. I want them to go look for the pangolin. If you find it, I will lead the ticker tape parade down Fifth Avenue celebrating your discovery of the magic pangolin. Meanwhile, somebody else, not the people with the conflict interest of interest should interview this to, to investigate this lab thing, you know, because it's pretty suspicious and there's a pile of circumstantial evidence. So they did a 90 day review. Now, if you were really in the business of getting to the bottom of it, why would you put a 90 day limit on the review? It doesn't really make any sense. Five, seven billion lives at stake. What if it takes a hundred days? You, you would just tell them to figure it out. They put their limit on the review because they weren't serious about it. Sure enough, the, the, the intelligence community hired, this is a great bit of data, they hired the scientists with the conflict of interest to help them with the intelligence review. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. You know, the, 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 even the intelligence community didn't have enough experts to do the review that they just could charge. So who did they hire? They hired the world's leading experts who were the subject of the review. I mean, if that doesn't blow your mind, nothing will. Okay. So guess what? The scientists 
who had the conflict of interest told their intelligence officials, nothing to see here. And the intelligence community was nothing to see here, except for one dissenter. Some of them were honest and said, we, we just can't figure it out. Some of them just, again, source capture. Just like, you know, we think intelligence officials are like, you know, I'm not saying they're bad people. I think they're really good people. I think that the way the Trump team sort of demonized them was really tar- horrible, but it doesn't mean that they're s- smarter than everyone else. It doesn't mean that like what they're looking on on that secret computer. Some of their sources much- are the New York Times and the Washington Post. And they're used, we're all doing the same thing. We're, yeah. we're exactly, we're trying to, it, well, you, you're joking, but it's actually true. Yeah, so, it's the, true. Yeah. so the point, the point that I'm trying to make is that the intelligence community botched the investigation. The Biden administration didn't care about it. So they just let it go unanswered. But there was one agency that said with a moderate level of confidence that they believed the lab was involved somehow. And that was reported in the New York Times to be the FBI. And my theory on that is that's because the FBI was the only one to actually investigate. In other words, use forensic experts and forensic tools to investigate an event that happened in the past. Because as long as the scientists are writing papers in Nature and Science Magazine to say, oh, well, we geo-calculated the pangolin and mink farms in a 40-mile area, and we uh, guess what? It turns out it was the market, after all, based on our calculations, are, are, that, that's essentially useless because in the end, the, the, it's not a scientific investigation. In other words, it's a forensic investigation. Something happened. We need to find out what it was. Now, you could say, okay, well, let, let's let the FBI do a real investigation, which is one idea that's out there. There are people like Roger Marshall, a senator from, where is he from? I don't Kansas? even know. But anyway, Kansas. if you say so, yeah, uh, that's what he's been calling for. Now, he's not, again, not taken seriously by the Democrats, so they don't want to join in. Administration's not pushing it. They sweep it under the rug. And so uh, that's where we are. We're at a stalemate. But I do think that there's more of an investigation to be done. I don't think that the Republican committees are going to be able to get at it, you know, because they don't have the tools and the resources that are really necessary. And I do think the Biden administration should use more of its diplomatic leverage to pressure the Chinese into revealing what they know. And it's not just about the origin, by the way. They've stifled information about this horrible worldwide pandemic. For three years, they continue to do so. Vital scientific information continues to be held out of our reach. Why is that? Does anyone stop and ask why? Why are they doing that? Okay. If we can't cooperate on a pandemic, whether or not they're responsible or not, right? Because it's not about blame. If you want to blame China for a lot of stuff, you don't need this. You've got plenty of stuff to blame China for. We can start with the balloon and the TikTok. That's enough. You don't, we, we're not, it's not hawkish, you know, guys in Washington like Josh Rogan trying to blame. China. No, we're trying to figure out how we got into this catastrophe so that we can have a better chance of making sure it doesn't happen again. And if China doesn't want to cooperate with them, well, then we might have to, you know, ask them a little bit more, less nicely. There is nobody pressuring the Chinese to cooperate on this. Biden administration doesn't care. They're going to call the Republican investigations, uh, you know, one-sided, which they may be, and uh, will continue, the threat will continue to grow. And this is a perfect example of how our internal politics are are undermining our ability to confront the Chinese Communist Party in a way that it really affects us, that really affects every American. The lack of seriousness in Washington, the lack of ability for the yeah. parties to deal with a, a foreign adversary is um, hampering a variety of things, including this COVID thing. Okay, we're going to conclude our conversation with Josh on all things big picture and what's next for US-China. But first, we're going to thank one of our sponsors. All right, we have another amazing deal from our other sponsor this week, Bull and Branch Betting and Sheets. They're extending their special deal for Mo News listeners. Bull and Branch took notice uh, in the fall as we had a discussion about top sheets versus duvets. Uh, and they were really excited about um, how passionate the Mo News community is about uh, a good night's sleep and their uh, sleep arrangements and their betting. And so they're offering right now Mo News listeners. 
15% off plus free shipping for a limited time with the promo code MONEWS. My wife Alex and I got a full set of their sheets in the fall. Sleeping on them nightly, they get softer with every wash. A reminder, we literally spend a third of our lives in bed, at least we should, eight hours a night. So sheets are a very big deal. A reminder again on the deal, for a limited time, get 15% off your first set of sheets and free shipping when you use the promo code MONEWS over at bullandbranch.com. That is Bull and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D-Branch.com, promo code MONEWS. So let's end here. So for a long time, say the Clinton years, the Bush years, the Obama years, there's a sense that we could Red Rover, Red Rover, China come over, right? You know, then we see the rise of Xi Jinping. He's now in his third term. We see the Trump approach, and we've addressed it a bit in this podcast. And by the way, you look at it now, and there were some things that Trump said that he was ridiculed for in the media that turned out, turned out to be right here when it comes to dealing with China. Right. And now you have the Biden administration, and we're coming off this balloon incident. What are our lessons learned, especially looking, let's just take the last two terms. Let's take Biden and Trump. What has worked? What hasn't worked? And throw, you know, you know, team your blue hat aside or your red hat aside. What has been effective? Um, as you've been observing all of this and you're reporting on all of this as we kind of move ahead here post-balloon. Right, right. So, by the way, I, I'm not blowing smoke up here, but this has been a great interview. You're really, like, getting to really the core issues here. And uh, I hope people will listen to the end uh, because there's it, it, it's really rare, actually, uh, to, to be able to, to talk about these things in such depth. But suffice to say that to answer your first question uh, about what went wrong, you know, let me read you. I just pulled up while I was sitting here uh, a column by one Nicholas Kristoff in the New York Times. I'm just going to read you the first sentence. And uh, it's January 5th, 2013. And I think it's on point. It says, here is my prediction about China. This is right before Xi Jinping took power. Nicholas Kristoff lived in China, was a China correspondent. I've never, I, I've been to China a bunch of times. I lived in Japan. I've never been China correspondent. This is Nicholas. He's the New York Times correspondent. He's he one of the most preeminent foreign policy columnists in the New York Times. But it's basically been him and him and Tom Friedman for a number of years. When I was at GW in my senior seminar, we were reading this Nick Kristoff. When I was studying these I issues in an academic sense, to the extent that I went to class, he went to GW. We didn't really go to class so much. But to the extent that I was there, Nick Kristoff was in the syllabus. Here is my prediction about China, writes Nick Kristoff. The new paramount leader, Xi Jinping, will spearhead a resurgence of economic reform and probably some political easing as well. Mao's body will be hauled out of Tiananmen Square on his watch and Liu Xiaobo, the Nobel Peace Prize winning writer, will be released from prison. Here is my case for Xi as a reformer. That was in the New York Times, okay? Update, that we're, about, we're exactly 10 years later. Uh, they have, did not economically reform. They did not politically reform. Uh, Liu Xiaobo died in prison, and uh, she has consolidated power and become the most cruel and powerful leader since Mao, if not more than Mao. So... They got it wrong. That generation got it wrong. What I'm trying to say is that we have a new generation in Washington that is slowly but surely ri ripping the or, or taking the reins of power over these institutions from the, no offense, older generation that screwed up the U.S.-China relations by telling themselves a story about what was going to happen in China based on what, what we wanted to happen in China, not what was actually going on in China. And I, I'm not claiming to be a, a, young, a young, I'm 44 years old, but I've been in this business 20 years and I've come up with a generation of Asian hands that never thought that way, okay? And 
they always, because they saw China for what it was, which is not that to say that we shouldn't try to make China better or wish for China or help China to be better or more successful, which is to say that it's not up to us, that China's development will be determined by the Chinese people one way or another. And regime change is not our, th- our thing that we're good at and we shouldn't try it. And it's a bad idea. It's hubris. And so in that scenario, the goal of U.S.-China relations can no longer be to change China. Moreover, the primary goal of U.S.-China relations cannot be to have smooth relations with China because smooth relations is not as important as protecting ourselves and uh, out-competing China to preserve the things that we value, like our security, our prosperity, our freedom, and our public health. Those things are more important in conjunction with our partners and allies. And that's a generational change that's going very slowly. And what my book is about is that in the Trump administration, a bunch of those people from that younger generation got a, got a chance to influence policy for the very first time. And that this realization started at the end of the Obama administration, but at that time, the engagement crowd was still in, in control. That was a time of Secretary John Kerry and Susan Rice. And these were well-meaning people who got it wrong, okay? And some of them are still around, like John Kerry, but it's a separate story. But the problem with the Trump administration is that the president didn't agree with that. He had his own agenda. He wanted to make a trade deal to get reelected. And he thought that he was on the way to doing that. So what worked well? Well, the trade war, although Democrats said it was a complete failure, did one very important thing, is that it actually instituted a system of sanctions and tariffs that slowed down the Chinese high technology advancement. And the Biden administration actually embraced that thing by cutting off China from even more high technology. And Trump didn't know about that. He wasn't aware of that. He just thought we were trying to make a deal. But there are a lot of people in the Trump administration that worked hard on that. And to and now, again, is that containment? Sure. But it's containment for a purpose. And so we so that's one thing that went well. But, you know, when President Trump says to President Xi, well, you know, those Hong Kong rioters, you should do whatever you want. And the Uyghurs in the Muslim concentration camps is the right thing to do. Well, that's horribly undermining to our interests and our values and the cause of human rights and democracy around the world. So it's a mixed bag. What the Biden administration is trying to do is they're trying to organize it all. And considering the circumstances, they're doing a pretty good job. It's not perfect. You know, things happen outside their control. They can't control Nancy Pelosi. They can't control Xi Jinping. They certainly can't control the balloon, apparently. But they're taking a stab at reorienting our strategy from engagement to competition. But nobody understands that because nobody wants to change the discussion away from like, Oh, are we getting along with China or are we not getting along with China? But I give the Obama, the Biden administration credit for realizing that that's the secondary issue. If we can get along with them while protecting ourselves, great. Right now, that's not working too well. And the, the bipartisanship in Congress is limited by its dysfunction and uh, division over some of the most important issues. So I, I think that, that what Blinken would say if he went to China is that we're willing to work with you, but not on any terms. And because the Chinese Communist Party doesn't believe that, they don't believe that we mean what we say, uh, they're going to continue advance until they face resistance. And rest assured, their appetite grows with the eating. So I think we face a window. I don't know if it's two years. I don't know if it's five. I'm not going to put a number on it because I don't think that's like a fair thing to do. But we face a window where we can get our act together. Again, not military. I'm not saying we'll need some military stuff, mostly in an economic, technological, political, and then sort of societal way to work together on what's a very complex and very serious growing threat, not just to us, but to all of the other countries in the world that look to us for leadership in the region and beyond. And uh, I don't know. Uh, that's, my, that's, my, that's my plea to, to people on the left and the right is that 
Uh, you have to uh, be willing to, you have to want to solve the problem more than you want to have the issue. And uh, we're just not there yet, but uh, it's not too late. Josh Rogan, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Anytime. And uh, visit my uh, watch, wristwatch and ramen review Instagram site at watch the ramen, where I combine my love of wristwatches and my love of Japanese ramen in a unique and artistic and fun way. Josh, send me the handle. We'll include it in the show notes along with a link to your book, um, which I imagine just given all how quickly this is unfolding, a sequel will have to come out at some point yeah. in the future, no? Oh, God. I don't know about that. Yeah, let me get through like the first year of my newborn baby's life, and then uh, I'll be ready to have some time to sleep. And then after that, have some time for some new projects. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. We we really appreciate it. Um, this is a, a pretty complicated thing. And as you say, so often we're just focused on the balloon, but it, it's really not about the balloon. So we appreciate it. A really fascinating conversation with Josh Rogan. A reminder, part one went up in the feed yesterday on all things TikTok in the balloon. Uh, thank you for listening to this part two of the conversation. We look forward to bringing you these conversations that bring you more context. A reminder that you can go check out Josh's book, Chaos Under Heaven, about all things U.S.-China during the Trump administration. We've linked to it in the show notes. You can also uh, follow his latest coverage over on Twitter, Josh Rogan, J-O-S-H-R-O-G-I-N, over there. Before you go, a reminder to leave us a review for this podcast. Every review matters and helps us grow the podcast. We also appreciate all of you who follow or subscribe to the show in whatever podcast app you use to listen to us. You can also follow me over on Instagram at Mosh at M-O-S-H-E-H for all things breaking news 24-7. We'll see everyone back here tomorrow for a daily edition of the Mo News Podcast.